Aloha Mission Church. Thank you for joining me in that beautiful tradition in the church of passing the peace. So, with your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 1, let's conclude chapter 1 with the closing verses that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. I'm going to read for you the passage of Scripture. And if you are comfortable, we're going to have the verses up on the screens here. If you would like to read along with me, these are the verses 27 to 30 in Philippians chapter 1. Let's read together. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of God. Wow. Amazing, amazing passage of scripture. We, if you have your Bibles open, it might be that right above this passage of scripture, um, there's a heading called A Life Worthy of the Gospel. Some Bibles have that written in there. And that's the call the Apostle Paul has for the church in Philippi. To live a life worthy of the gospel for the sake of Jesus Christ. And as you read on in the passage, you find a call for unity. Unity in the spirit and unity for the gospel, which is so, it's a strong message that he has. But then he concludes this passage of scripture with a call for courage. And then he adds a message about suffering that I want to explore a little bit with you today. So let's go ahead and unpack this beautiful passage of scripture here in Philippians chapter 1. Father in heaven, open our hearts and our minds to what you would have to say to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share the context of what is happening here in Philippi. The city that this church, this fledgling brand new city uh, church, finds itself in. Because it, it kind of gives light to why Paul is sharing what he is sharing here. And um, Philippi, it, it, was, it was a very strategic city. Uh, and, and the location of it and the culture of that city is really important to understand. And so, it's lo- it was located, Philippi, at the base of a mountain. And at the base of the mountain, they mined it and found that there were gold and silver there. And so we know that Philippi was a very prosperous city. Right. Um, You know, money was something that they didn't have a problem with. They had a great economy there in Philippi. Also to note, which added to their prosperity, is that Philippi was one of the stops along the Ignatian Way, which was the major route east to west in the Roman Empire. Think of Philippi kind of like 
a hub that we know of, you know, when we travel, like L.A. or Atlanta, you know, those are big airport hubs. And so when the chariots rolled in, there would be a layover sometimes. And then when the weather was good, there would be no delays. Okay, that's just think of that. That's what's going on at the time. Thank you, Brian, for laughing at my jokes. That means so much to me when people are paying attention and know that it's funny. <laughs> so it's, it's located along the Ignatian Way. And, um, and, and so this is a major transport, a major, have lots of people there. But the most important thing about this city in Philippi was that it was a Roman colony. And this city wasn't just a Roman colony. It was patterned almost exactly and precisely after Rome itself. And so this is how it came about. In 31 BC, Octavius, who later became known as Augustus, the first Roman Empire, engaged in this battle. It was a civil war. He was trying to increase his rule and his reign throughout the Roman Empire. And he was in battle with uh, with Mark Anthony. And, and the, the battle waged for 10 years until Octavius finally won the battle. And he was now the emperor of all of the Roman Empire. And so, to reward the faithful leaders of his army and the soldiers, what Octavius did was he deeded them land in Philippi. And to curry favor with the other Roman soldiers that were in defeat, to win their, their allegiance and to win over their hearts, do you know what he did? He deeded them land in Philippi. And so as they rebuilt the city of Philippi, you find the most dedicated, the most patriotic of Roman citizens there in Philippi. And, and, and this city now, flies the Roman flag. It shows its colors as Roman colors. It's populated with the most dedicated of citizens. And, and Philippi was rebuilt using Rome as its template. And so, when they rebuilt the city, they rebuilt it with Roman architecture. The streets were named after the same streets that you found in Rome. They had great Italian restaurants there. You guys are catching on. This is good. <laughs> Roman fashion was all the rage. Louis Vuitton togas were really, everybody wore them there. And they worshipped the gods that they worshipped in Rome. The Greek gods. And they spoke Latin because that's what was spoken in Rome. They were pro-Rome, flying the colors, raising the flag. Their faith and their culture was steeped in Rome. And this is the culture. This is the context that this fledgling brand new church begins its, its life in. This new Jesus community was really out of place. They, they, they were kind of starting up in a place where the culture and even the faith was, was kind of antithetical to what, what they were believing in. It wasn't a favorable place. It wasn't hospitable for a brand new church to get started. And there were a lot of pressure 
from the culture and from the faith of Rome for this new community to conform to. The culture was pressing in on the church and pulling the church apart to have the the people of this Jesus community, this church in Philippi, become more like the culture that they were in. But the message of the gospel and the call of God was antithetical to the culture of Rome. And this is why when the Apostle Paul finishes up chapter 1, he writes this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's his call to the church to remain true to what God has called them to despite the cultural pull of the place where they were. But this has been a call not just for the church in Philippi, but the church all throughout the generations even as it began. Romans 12.2 reminds us not to conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? We remember that familiar verse. We're called to stay true and not to conform to the pattern of this world. Because in the church and to the believers of Jesus, our faith and our culture is rooted right here in God's Word. And this Word is unchanging even in a changing world where culture is being pushed and pulled left and right. So how does a church live and thrive in a place where culture is in such a stark contrast to the gospel message of Jesus Christ? How do we do that? How did they do that? We can learn from what they did. And we can learn as we move forward for ourselves. So what the Apostle Paul shares to this brand new Jesus community is, is a word for all of us today. Right? We're living in the midst of, of, a, of a changing culture. The cultural revolution that is happening right here in, in America, right here, is, is, is like all cultural revolutions. Right? Every revolution that takes place calls for changing things around. And, 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 and the things that we have found, that I have seen, we've talked about this in conversations, maybe you've had conversations with yourself, but we're seeing this. This is undisputable. Our language is changing. Right? There, there are new phrases to words that we've never even heard of before. And when you change language, that changes everything. Our history is changing. What's in front of us? And also the things that happened before. And when language changes and history changes, values begin to change. And when values start to change, it makes being in relationship with people very challenging. These changes push the norms of society further and further away from living a life worthy of the gospel. These pulls and pushes and pulls from culture. And so, I have it right here. In this book that uh, I have right here, it's a book, which I, which I really, a unique name, Canoeing the Mountains by Todd Bolsinger. 
I, I got this book and I've asked the staff and the church to the, the my staff and the church board to read it. And it's it's uh, the subtext to this is called Christian leadership in uncharted territory. And so the premise of this book is this: that the world in front of you is nothing like the world behind you. What we're facing in the church today, right, is nothing like what the church looked like back then. And everything we prepared for back then doesn't really prepare us too well for what's ahead of us. And there's a quote that Todd Balsinger writes in there, and I think this is a good assessment of where we're at. He says that pastors are in uncharted uncharted terrain trying to lead dying churches into a post-Christian culture that now considers the church an optional, out-of-touch, and irrelevant, irrelevant relic of the past. That's what we're facing. This is from a, a sociologist that studies these things. Amazing. Oh, you got the quote right up there for you. And, and if you've lived long enough, like, like I have, you've seen culture just change at a rapid pace, faster than any of us has ever seen before in our lives. It's changing at warp speed. Our language changes, our history changes, our values change. And, and what that leads to is a changing of morality in our society. And so, what is moral today? What is acceptable today? What is, what is, what is normal today? is so different from what it was even five years ago, and then even more so ten years ago. And the further back you go, the more different it is than where we're at today. Is that true, amen? You guys with me? Yeah. And so when morality changes, the code of how society runs in that morality, what, what we do is normal changes as well too. And back in the day when I was growing up, the Ten Commandments was wisely, widely accepted as a code of conduct, a, 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 a way to live your life, a morality that we all accept to be good and true. It's not like that anymore today. You can't find the Ten Commandments posted anywhere where it used to be in, in, in courthouses and in different places. And so now, we are living in a time of relativism. Right? It's relative. There's no standard. There's no set of absolute truths. And there's no real boundaries by which to live by. And, and earlier I just mentioned that when you live in relationship with others, this kind of drastic change makes being in relationship very difficult. Our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. And our world is, is living in, in this, in, in our world is living in the, the new foundation that society is building. And it's a different foundation than any of us have ever stood on before. And when you live in that relationship where you don't share the same values, where the morality is different from one another, it's hard to engage and live well. I can give you examples, but just in your own mind. Just think, the person that you love the most, 
that you share so much in common with, if they began to change their ideas of what the relationship that you and I, that they, you have with them, how that would be so challenging and difficult. And that's kind of what we're living through now. When you don't have good boundaries for society, chaos happens. Because anybody can choose whatever they want to do. And so this causes a great tension. And the greatest tension, the greatest places where this tension is felt is in places where different generations congregate and gather together. You ever notice that in the church, the pull and push and pull of culture is felt really powerfully here? You know why? Because when you look around, there are different generations here and we're all pulled by the different things that, that we feel strongly about that are our values and our morality. And we see it in families where when we come together with different generations, our children are different from who we are. I'm different from my parents and my children are, are looking very different from who they were, how I raised them to be and how you might have raised your children to be. And, and, and this tension continues to pull us apart. And the world is doing all that it can to indoctrinate our younger generation. And, and these new values that the world is pressing on our children are in direct conflict with biblical values, biblical truth, and the message of the gospel. And, and I'll, I'll share some examples with you. It's highlighted in this book, but it's really highlighted in culture and in community. All you have to do is turn on the television or open up your phone and look at social media, and it's everywhere. And one of the things that you'll find is race is a very divisive issue in our world today. And it's true, we are all different races. I'm not sure if you guys have noticed yet, but I'm Chinese. (laughs) And I'm very different from many of you. Right, But can I tell you that in more ways than I am different, I am just like you. And, uh, and what I want you to know is that despite the fact that there are different races, and from our different races come different histories, and we all have different features, it's so important that we celebrate the differences. I'm all for that. I love my culture. I'm Chinese, but I grew up in Hawaii, and I, have, I share this Chinese and Hawaiian culture that I love sharing with you, and I, and I think you appreciate some of that. <laughs> but when we use race to divide us, to divide people, we miss the biblical principle of the unity that comes that God gives to us in, in, in who we are. And so here's the biblical perspective of the differences that we have. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says this, Here, there is no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all 
and is in all. He calls for, for us to not see ourselves as different, but look at what makes us the same and what unifies us. And that is Christ. And we have more in common with each other than we do different. No matter what race we are. Just look at us. Right? Our biology is 100% the same. We have two eyes, two ears, two nose, a, a nose, two arms, two legs, two feet, two hands. We're all the same that way in our biology. In our emotions. It doesn't matter what race you are. Every person in this world feels joy and sadness. Every person has times of fear, times of love. Doesn't matter what race you are. Doesn't matter how different you are. Doesn't matter where in the world you are or what language you speak. All of those emotional things we feel. So, we're the same biologically, we're the same emotionally, and I will go so far as to say we're the same spiritually. We have all been created in the image of God. That's what the Bible teaches. And we all find salvation the exact same way, through Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. God loves all people, and we're saved the same way. By faith in Jesus Christ. And so the cultural revolution continues on. And our cultural revolution that we're experiencing today is impressing upon our children something that we've never much seen before, but it is just really taking shape in, in more places than we realize. I, I'm, I'm separated from this because my kids are all grown. But even in our public schools, there, there is a doctrine that they're teaching of gender fluidity. Not sure if you even heard that term. And, and thus, the changing language our world is embar- embar- uh, embarking upon. And this, this new idea of gender fluidity means that you can choose your, your own identity. And they say that gender is assigned at birth. Instead of the biological fact that babies are born male and female. And so there's this, 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 what's going on right now is, is the culture, this cultural revolution trying to, to change what we have known in the past to be true about race, about gender, about sexuality. And what we want to do in the church is to continue to point back to what the Word of God says. Because this is our standard by which we live. This is what Paul calls us to, to live worthy of the Gospel. It's not my choice. I'm not trying to tell you something that I believe in personally for me. I'm I'm trying to lift up the Word of God and allow the text from the Holy Word to speak to all of us today. And God's plan for humanity is to regard marriage and sex and gender. The plan is really clear, and I'll just point it out to you. In Genesis chapter 2, in the very beginning, God shares his plan for all of this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 to 24, it's on the screen here. You can take a look at it. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed the place up with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is the verse that's really important. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The reason why this passage is so important is because this is at the beginning of creation. And the only two people that God had created since, in that time, was Adam and Eve. And look at what it says right here. That is why a man leaves his father and mother. (laughs) There's no such thing as a father and mother right here. There's only Adam and Eve. And so, you know what we find from this passage of Scripture? We find in this passage of Scripture, God's plan moving forward for what He, God's divine plan for marriage, for gender, for sex. That there's going to be something called a father and something called a mother. Although, there's no such thing as that right now. But this is my plan. Adam, Eve, You will create a child and then you will become a father and mother. And you're going to let your child go to another father and mother's child, a daughter, and the two will become one flesh. Isn't that amazing? That we can find God's plan before anything ever happens. This is in creation right here. At the very start, we understand clearly what God's plan is for marriage, for sex, and for gender. And so, God shares this divine plan with us. This is what takes place because it's His plan, not mine, not yours. This is God's plan. And in a world where our culture is changing so much, this doesn't change. This stays the same. And the gap of what is accepted in culture that gap between what is accepted in culture and the gospel message of God, that gap keeps getting wider and wider and wider. And the tension between the two gets stronger and tighter and tighter. And the cultural revolution, when it comes to the doorsteps of our church and our family, every family faces this. We see the gap And the separation that it causes in our own homes. In in our sanctuary. In our people. And it plays out in the relationships that we share with one another. That's, That's where it takes its biggest hit. It's in the relationships that we share with one another. And that is why the Apostle Paul calls... For the church in Philippi, when, when, when he prays for the church, I don't know if you remember my sermon from a couple of weeks ago, but Paul prays specifically for the church. You can look at it in verse 9 and 10. He says, this is my prayer. 
that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul is praying that the church in Philippi would would grow their love for the gospel. Their love for the gospel. And when your love for God's word grows and abounds more and more, it, it takes hold of not only your heart, but it paves the way for the life that you move forward. And I want you to know, church, that for the Apostle Paul, this is the plan going forward. That this is the plan going forward. That when this prayer that the Apostle Paul prays for the church in Philippi and for the, for Mission Church and for all of our churches today, when this prayer is answered, that our love for the gospel will abound and grow more and more and take hold of our hearts, that it would transform all of us in such a way that we will all be unified in the way moving forward. But if we do not love the gospel and tether ourselves to the gospel, then I want you to know, church, there is absolutely no way that we can live a life worthy of it. If we don't love this, how do we live a life worthy of it? But that's what Paul is calling us to. And so, when we're talking about the Word of God, the beautiful thing about the Word of God is, I love this, is that it is an anchor for us. It holds us true. And there's warnings in the Bible warning us, don't change a thing about this. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, you can look it up. Moses says, don't change the law. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. John the disciple of Jesus, says the very same thing in the very last chapter of Revelation. Don't add anything or take anything away from this prophetic book. And we all have lived through the last two years and we've witnessed how confusing and frustrating it is when you constantly move the goalpost. Nobody likes that. It causes confusion and frustration. And that's why I love being tethered to something that is secure. Something that we can all stand on. That we can put ourselves on. And we know that it will not move or change. And that is what the Word of God is. And that is why the church must hold true to the gospel message. And this is where the Apostle Paul calls all of us to unity. Right here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Easy to be scared in these day and age to stand firm for the gospel. It is. But the Apostle Paul calls the church to stand firm and not allow the prevailing culture to influence or shape or even scare them to conform. 
And today we need to be careful that we're not so influenced or scared or shaped to conform to the things that are happening in our world. The unity of the gospel message is what will help us have a firm foundation for what not only we believe, but for what we live. And then, Paul goes on to the persecution of the church. Right? He says that. That you won't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, the thing that we have to remember here is the Apostle Paul, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. He's already been persecuted for preaching the gospel. He's, he is the person that is living out what he's talking about here. Living out what it means to be worthy of living the life of, God, of the gospel. Because he's doing it. And he closes out chapter 1 with this encouragement. And here's what he says. And this will be a sign that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The Apostle Paul is saying this. With joy in his heart, he's saying, are you ready? Are you ready to suffer for the gospel and rejoice as, as, as a result of it? Are you? I mean, that's a good question, right? When suffering comes, are you ready to rejoice as a result of it? But I'll tell you something, church. We will only suffer for things that we love. Because if we don't love it, we'll just drop it off quickly. But if you, if you love something, you will endure it. Whatever it is, and you'll suffer for it. I'll give you an analogy that I just thought of this morning as I was going through my notes. When I was a young father, I'd never had to did, did, did this before, but as a young father, I had to change diapers. All right? And you talk about suffering. (laughs) But every young father who loves his children will tell you that they did it joyfully. I did. I jumped at every chance I got to change poopy diapers. (laughs) Because I love my kids. Oh my goodness. Now, that was a pretty big stretch. from what we're talking about here. But I think you get the idea that if you love something, you can be willing to suffer for it and rejoice in it. So, I close with a message, not from Paul, but from Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus as he shares this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are Those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What's the next word? Rejoice and be glad. (laughs) Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets... 
who were before you. It's hard to rejoice when you know you have to suffer. But when you love, and you love deeply, you're willing to do it. And so I pray today that as we finish up this message, that we would be people who would be willing or committed or we would go so far as to say we would be people who love living life worthy of the gospel. And we'd be willing to suffer for it. And that the power of God and the work of His Holy Spirit would help us through all that we're going through. Would you bow your heads and join me in this prayer? Lord God, today's message was challenging. To some respects, it was challenging because what you're calling us to, to live a life worthy of the gospel, calls us, Lord God, to have to suffer as a result of it. You even told the church in Philippi, in the midst of the culture that you, go, that you live in, it's so different from what, the, what Scripture calls us to live by. And it's so easy to be pulled into that culture so that you can fit in and not stand out and so that you can be unassuming. But that's not what light is. And that's not what salt is. And you called us to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Oh, Lord God, help us day by day to love the gospel. That our love for it would abound more and more every day so that we will discern what is good and what is best and live righteous lives for your glory. Lord, you're inviting us to this life. And I pray, Lord God, that we accept this invitation of what it means to live this way and to be unafraid because of your saving grace for us. Thank you, God, for your word. May we be tethered to it so we can live by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.